And so we're continuing our study in James. We're going to be in James chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to read James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. And we're going to read through verse 18. He says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias or Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for a night like tonight. Lord, uh, where we can just pause and get in your presence in your church. Lord, to be encouraged, to be challenged. Uh, Lord, James has, uh, has been a great book to challenge us. And Lord, we just ask that you would just go ahead of us. Lord, enlighten us and prepare our hearts and minds to receive what you would give us. And Lord, I pray that you would just remind me all the things I studied for. Help me get out the way, Lord. And Lord, this is all about you, that you would take center stage. And we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, If you have your handout, uh, tonight's message is called The Power of Prayer. The whole, uh, I guess, theme and and thrust of these verses in James chapter 5 is about prayer. Uh, he, he's talking about the, the, the power of prayer. And, and, and this is going to be something, for some of you, prayer is a problem. Uh, prayer is a problem. And, and, and you might say, well, when it comes to prayer, I feel inadequate. Or maybe you feel uncomfortable. Like if somebody asked you to pray out loud, uh, you'd, you'd get nervous as a cat. You know, you don't, you don't feel comfortable praying out loud. And, or maybe you don't feel comfortable praying with your spouse. You know, your, your wife or your, your husband is asking, why don't we pray together? Maybe it just makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, maybe you believe that others are better at getting a prayer through than you are. And, and so instead of you praying, you always ask other people to pray for you because you just don't have faith in your own prayers. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but I think some of us might say there's been a time in my life where I've struggled in my prayer life. Or, or maybe when it comes to prayer, you feel discouraged. Because there's been times where you were earnest. Man, you were sincere. You were praying for, uh, let's say, a loved one who was on their deathbed. And you're praying for them to be healed. And you were earnest. And you were, you were serious about it. And then a few days later, they pass. And it discouraged you. Or maybe... Maybe you were praying so intently about your marriage, God, that you would restore us, that you would bring back happiness in our life, that, that you, would, you would make us like newlyweds all over again, and then you get served with divorce papers. And all of a sudden, you're like, man. You know, it's easy to get discouraged in our prayer life. Maybe, maybe some of you have tried so hard to have a baby, and you finally see those blue little lines on that stick and then you find out at your next checkup they couldn't find a heartbeat. And you're just devastated, discouraged. I don't know, maybe there's some people that can relate that maybe in their own prayer life they just don't feel adequate, they feel discouraged. And, and sometimes uh, we have a problem with prayer because we just come to the conclusion, it just doesn't work for me. I just, I don't think it works for me. It might work for y'all, but it don't work for me. And, and, and so if you're someone that has a problem with prayer... I want to challenge you to keep on praying. And you might say, why? 
Well, there's a lot of reasons why, but one of the main reasons why we should keep on prayer, praying even when we feel discouraged, even when we feel inadequate, is number one, the Bible tells us to. And we just do those things to be, to be obedient to Scripture. But I could pull all kinds of references to show you the importance of praying. I could take you back to Jesus and show you how He prayed. And Lord knows if Jesus prayed, we need to pray. And He's our example. And we're supposed to model our life after Him. So if He was a person of prayer, then obviously we should copy and imitate what He does. But just for one simple reference, look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. This is what Paul says about the issue of prayer. He says, Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. In other words, you say, hey, no matter what's going on in life, whatever's happening, he says, stop and pray. Just, be, be, just take a moment to pray. And, 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 and prayer may, here's the thing about prayer. Prayer may not change your problems, but it will change you. And so we have to trust. We, we really have to trust in moments when we're asking God to do something big in our life and it doesn't work out the way we want to. The, the thing is, I pray not so God will do my will. I pray so maybe I could do his will. You know, and that's the whole I'm aligning myself up with him. It's interesting. Last week, I didn't I didn't get a chance to listen to Pastor Malcolm's message. But if you read verses seven through twelve of chapter five, you see the word patience is used seven times. And so verses 7 through 12, there's a lot of enduring and be patient and with patience and with patience. And over and over again, James is saying, be patient, patient, patient. Seven different times in verses 7 through 12. How many of you know being patient is difficult? Ever heard, don't pray for patience? That's silly because God's going to test you whether you ask for it or not. Okay, but but patience is one of those things that's hard to learn and hard to deal with because we want immediate answers. We are a microwave generation. You know, we want the healing now. We want the answer now. We want the deposit in the bank account now. Like we want immediate answers. But sometimes we have to exercise some patience. James kept saying, be patient in verses 7 through 12. And then you get to verses 13 through 18. And he uses the word prayer seven times. And I found that interesting. I found it interesting. It's as if James is saying, hey, the solution to being patient is prayer. So, so, in other words, prayer is what gives you the endurance while you are waiting. Prayer and patience is connected. They're together. So if you struggle in your prayer life, what is likely also happening is you're struggling in your patience as well. And if you're struggling in your patience, what's also likely happening is you're struggling in your prayer life. Because you need both. They're, they're intermingled. James is showing how they're connected while you are waiting, pray. And while you are praying, wait. That's what he's saying. And so, and we get to these, the meat, the verses 13, 13 through 18, we're getting to the meat of all this. James is going to introduce four different scenarios uh, of, of prayer. And so if you have your handout, we'll start in verse 13 with number one. <clears throat> the praying person. The praying person. Verse 13. It says... Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. That word afflicted, 
It doesn't just mean sickness. Sometimes we think of afflicted as being sickness, but it's a broader term. It basically means anything that troubles you. Are you troubled? Are you financially troubled? Are you troubled in your marriage? Are you troubled, uh, are you troubled in, your, in your relationships? Are you physically troubled? Are you, are, is there something going wrong in your life? And we have so many examples through Scripture of people who suffered affliction. You have Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who suffered opposition. You, you, have, you have the prophet Ezekiel who suffered sadness. You have the prophet Hosea who struggled with marital problems. And you see people afflicted all throughout Scripture. Affliction, put it this way, affliction is anything that's happening in your life that if somebody else was to look at it, they would say, Whew, that's bad. Whew. Or, or they say, man, I don't know how you do it. I don't know. That's, that's what affliction is. If you was to sum it up, it's what anything, anything anybody could look at your life and say, Boy, I'm, I wouldn't want to be you. That's affliction. And James is saying, is any of you afflicted? And then James shows us the other side of that coin. He says, is any of you merry? Let him sing psalms. Merry is to be of good heart. You, and, and, and this doesn't mean, necessarily mean to be trouble free because we're never trouble free in this world. It just means while we're in troubles, we just have a gladness about us. We're just happy. We have an internal joy about us. And James is calling all people. He says, if you're afflicted, he says, you need to pray. He says, but if you're merry of heart, you need to pray. Yeah. Yeah. He uses the word praise. And really praise and prayer is kind of the same thing. In other words, when everything's going good, you need to pray. And when everything's going bad, you need to pray. Amen. There's not a time where it's not appropriate to pray. <clears throat> prayer is not a, and, and prayer is not just a spiritual moaning. Oh God, why? Why now? Why this? Why here? And, and prayer is also can be a, a song of victory. God, I just want to say thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your help. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you. And so it, cannot, it doesn't also always have to be a prayer of, Lord, help me. It can always be a prayer of, Lord, thank you as well. And so James is showing us both sides of the coin. If you read the book of Psalms, you'll follow along and you'll find David was a, was a man like this. David was kind of bipolar. In one chapter, he says, God, where are you? My enemies are closer than you are. And then the next chapter, he says, God, you are my rock and my refuge, my strength, my strong arm. And he goes from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, from chapter to chapter. Now, there's dangers here. <clears throat> there's dangers here if we're not careful. For the person who is afflicted, here's the danger. The person who is afflicted can become bitter in their heart, can become discouraged, depressed, and what usually happens is when they come into trials in their life, what they'll do is they'll turn their back on God because they feel as if God has, has betrayed them. And so they step away from God. And the other flip side of that is the person who is merry of heart, who is excited and, and happy about life. Here's the danger for that person. That person also turns their back on God because they say, you know what, I, things are good right now. I don't need you. And so there's a danger on both sides of this. And I think that's why James is making it clear. No matter where you are, you need to pray because you need to acknowledge God in every situation and season of life. I have seen people leave church for both reasons. And wherever we find ourselves in the mountaintops or in the valleys, James says, pray, pray. What does it mean? It means this, that there is never a time in your life where God is not inviting you to his presence. Amen. 
There's never a time in your life where he's not inviting you to say, hey, let's come, come sit down with me for a little bit. Let's talk. Because he's the God of the valleys. He's the God of the mountaintops. He's the God of all seasons. He's worthy of prayer and praise. And you, when you spend time praying and praising God in times of suffering and in times of trouble and in times of joy and in times of happiness, you are acknowledging, God, you are sufficient for me. In every stage of life, you are enough. When you pray, when you pray to him, you're saying, God... I know that you are sufficient for my every need. When you're praying to him, I I have a need, God. I know you're sufficient for my every need. And then when you praise him, you're saying, God, I thank you for meeting my every need. And so in every situation, you're saying, God, you are sufficient. You are more than enough. And on and on throughout this whole verse that we're going to be reading today, we're going to find that uh, James is saying that God is more than enough. Now, there's a difference between knowing God is enough and believing he is enough. Here's the difference. You practice what you believe. I know a lot of stuff. But knowing it and believing it's two different things. If I'm in an airplane 20,000 feet above the earth and I put on a parachute and I kick open that door and I jump out. And I know that if I pull this, this cord, that that, that, that parachute is going to come out, it's going to fill with air, and it's going to slow my descent down to the ground, and I will lay, uh, uh, land safely on the ground. If I know that, but I don't do it, what's going to happen? I'm going to make a crater. That's what's going to happen. They will put a plaque there in my honor. But... If I believe it will do that, if I jump out and I, I believe if I pull this cord and, and if, if that parachute opens and it fills with air, it's going to slow my descent and I'm going to land safely on the ground and I pull that cord and it does exactly what I believe it to do. That's the difference. Knowing and believing something means you're putting it into action. And so if you believe God is sufficient, that he can meet your every need when you are afflicted. And if you believe God is sufficient during your good times, then here's what's going to happen. The posture of your hearts will be one that pursues prayer and praise. It will just be something natural where you just say, God, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. God, I wouldn't have what I have if it wasn't for you. Or if you're in a place of desperation, you could say, God, I know I'm in a bad place, but I remember where there was a fourth man in the fire. So God, I thank you that I'm not alone in my trials and my difficulties. I know this is not a comfortable place for me to be right now, but I just want to say thank you for being here with me. God, I know you're not, you may not change my circumstances, but God, I thank you for changing me. And so we pray to him in all walks of life. And if you're walking like that, where your posture is angled up towards heaven, your heart is just glory, glorifying him and praising him, what happens is anytime something bad happens towards you, it's just going to go like this. Because you're just angled towards heaven. You're going to deflect it right back to the Lord. And every time something good happens, you're going to deflect it back to the Lord. And so what James is calling us to is an attitude and a response that no matter what stage of life you are in, it should compel you to pray. Pray. Well, here's the second thing he addresses. Number two, we see the praying elders, the praying elders. Look in verse 14. He says, Is any sick among you? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil 
in the name of the Lord. Now, these verses have been really misunderstood in a lot of ways. You know, here he talks about anointing people with oil and they're going to be healed. And this gets taken out of context sometimes. And that's why you have things like these faith rallies, these healing rallies where people are falling out on the floor and they're throwing coats at people and they're just catching the spirit and foaming at the mouth and doing all kind of stuff like that. Do I believe God still does miracles? 100 percent I do. Do I believe that there's things that are unexplainable, that God is doing things that makes the religious people go, huh? I believe it 100%. God can't be put in a box. You can't figure him out. You, you can't just say, well, you can only go this far. God does whatever he wants whenever he wants. And so I believe God still does miracles. But if we're not careful with the context of what we're reading here, then we can have the assumption that if we do this process, then that means that every time a person is sick, if we anoint them and pray with them, then that means they're automatically going to be healed. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous. God will heal according to his will and his mercy and his grace. He's not a magical genie where if you do these certain steps or he's not some kind of mystical wizard that if you say this certain prayer, then he's obligated to heal you. That's not how God works. But there's a lot of people who take this verse where it says we got to anoint them with oil and, and pray for them and they're automatically healed. Now, why we need the context is because we have to remember who is James writing to here? James is writing to persecuted and displaced Christians, Jewish Christians who have been persecuted and now they're fleeing Palestine. And matter of fact, if you go to James chapter one, I think we have a James chapter one, verse one. He opens his letter and he says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He's, he's talking to a scattered people, a persecuted people. And so being both Jewish and Christian, this audience he's writing to, they're Jewish Christians. They're, they're living in a hostile world, a, a, a pagan world, and they're constantly under persecution. And, and James opens chapter 1. If you go back and read James chapter 1, he opens with a word of encouragement. He tells them, you, you must patiently endure trials. Endure those trials you're going through. And then we get to James chapter 5. What's he doing? He's returning to that same thing. He opened with the idea of enduring trials. Now he's going to close his letter with the idea that you must endure various trials. And then in verse 6 of chapter 5, he's describing the persecuted people who are being persecuted by the, by the wicked uh, uh, wealthy people. He says you're, you're being persecuted by those who have power. And then you get to verses 7 and 11, and he's calling us to, again, patiently endure trials and persecution. So what's happening? That first century church, the church that James is writing to, is a persecuted people. They're being beaten. They're being stoned. They're being imprisoned. They're being, they're being exiled. They're being discriminated against. This is a hurting people. That's who James is writing to. And as we have noted already... James continues to say, be patient, be patient, be patient. But in verse 14, James chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Now, that word sick in the Greek is the, is the word astihino. And it basically means weak. Those who are weak. Paul used the same exact word. When he's talking about the persecution he endured in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, this is what Paul says. 
He says, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. That word infirmities, again, is that word, astihino, which means weak. These, these infirmities, these, these problems have weakened me. He says, in reproaches, in necessities, that means hardships, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. What is Paul saying? Paul is using that same exact word that James used where we translated it sick, but but Paul is using it in the context of persecution. He says, these are the things I've gone through in my pursuit of Christ. I have endured all kinds of hardships and trials and persecutions. And he says, when I am weak, I am strong. Paul wasn't necessarily speaking about sickness. He was speaking about persecution. So so why am I telling you all this? Because I'm trying to give you context. We know the audience. James is speaking to a persecuted bunch of people who've been beaten, who've been imprisoned, who've been stoned, who have been hurt, who've been depressed, who feel defeated. And they've tried to draw on God's power through prayer, but they feel so defeated. They become spiritually weak. And now, because they're spiritually weak, they need somebody who is spiritually strong to help them. And that's why James says, go find the elders of the church. Let them minister to you. Those who are spiritually weak, those who who feel beaten down, those who feel persecuted. He says, go call on the elders of the church. Now, who is the elder of the church? The elders of the church were the overseers, the church leadership. Now, if the sheep are hurting, they need to go find their shepherds. That's That's what James is saying. He says, to the hurting sheep out there, go find your shepherds. Let them minister to you. You might be weak now, but they are strong. They can help you. And so in James chapter four, uh, 5, verse 14, he tells them, And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now here we're, here's where it gets controversial. Because most of my life I've seen the anointing oil take place in church. Now I think there's something beautiful and very symbolic about this. It's symbolic in the way that the anointing oil represents the presence and the healing power of God on a person's life. Absolutely. It's very, it's very symbolic. But again, what is the context? The context is James is talking to a battered and bruised bunch of Christians. They've been beaten. They've been, they've been tore up from the floor up, beat up from the feet up. All right. And they need some loving. They need some care. And so olive oil in that time period was actually a medicinal purpose. And they would use it. Matter of fact, go, if you go Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, we find this this Jewish man who's been beaten, laid on the side of the road and a good Samaritan finds him and he goes and he picks him up. And the very first thing this good Samaritan does, if you look in 10, verse 10, verse uh, sorry, chapter 10, verse 34 of Luke, Luke, chapter 10, verse 34. And Jesus or the sorry, the good Samaritan went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, why did he use oil? Because oil, I don't know if you realize this or not, olive oil is an anti-inflammatory, it's an antibacterial, it's an antioxidant, it's an antiviral. It has all these properties in it. Wine was used as an antiseptic to disinfect the wound. What is, what is the Good Samaritan doing with the oil? He's, he's administering it to the wounds of the victim to try to heal him. It's a medicinal purpose. Psalm 23. Y'all know it. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 5. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Now we get to verse 5. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Okay, the context of this, this, this psalm here is he's talking about a good shepherd. In other words, in this picture, he's the sheep. God is the good shepherd. He's the sheep. Now, here's something interesting about shepherds. They would use oil to put on their sheep for multiple reasons. They would use the oil to do, to do like a fly repellent. The olive oil was used like a fly repellent. Also, it would keep their, their wool from getting all tangled up. It, it, they would use it to massage into the wool of that sheep. Or when they would butt heads and they would get wounds on their heads, they would put the oil on the wounds of their heads. And so there was all these reasons that they would use oil to apply it to the sheep. What is David saying here? He's saying, God, you are my good shepherd and you heal all of my wounds and all of my hurts. You take care of me, Lord. Now, if you go back to James chapter five, verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The Greek word here for anoint means to smear or to rub all over the body for a medical purpose. So James is indicating here that the elders of the church would meet these wounded, battered, bruised, and and distraught people. And what they would do is they would bring them in and they would apply oil to their bodies. And then they were meeting their physical needs by giving them basically what was the modern medicine of the day. And then they would take time to pray with them. They would they would do they'd meet the physical need, but then they would pray about the rest. Does that make sense? He would apply the oil to the wounds. Think of it this way. When you see a doctor and the doctor says you got a bad heart. You're going to take some medicine. I don't know how many people would be like, I'll pray about it. In my opinion, you take the medicine and you pray about it. There's no shame in taking the medicine. Jesus met a man who was blind from birth. And Jesus went up to him and began talking to him. And he took some dirt and he spit in it. He mixed it up. He made like a clay. He put it on the man's eyes and told him to go wash it off in the pool of Siloam. And the man did that, and after he washed his eyes, he became, he was able to see again. It was a miracle. And it used to wig me out, because I'd read all these passages where Jesus is just spitting on people. I'm like, he's just spitting on everybody. And I'm like, why is he spitting? And then I started doing some studying about that. Did you know saliva in that time period was a form of medicine? They would use saliva on wounds. They would use saliva on burns. They would use saliva on eye infections. They would use saliva on insect bites. They would, they would just spit on you. Think about, hey, where's my rednecks at? When you got a hornet sting or a bee sting, you ever put tobacco on it? All right. I'm not crazy. All right. We do some, hey, your little boy falls down and scrapes his knee, runs to mama. Mama. Mama blows on that knee and then kisses it. And there's something magical in that kiss because all of a sudden all that pain goes away. Or how many of y'all had a mama like this? You had something on your cheek and she goes. You know what I'm saying? And so there was there was some medicinal purposes behind saliva. Now, I read that. and I started thinking about it. I'm like, what did Jesus do here? He took something that was relevant to them. This is some kind of 
modern medicine for them, saliva, and then he put a spiritual twist on it. And, and, and I want to be careful how I, I, I say this, because sometimes as Christians we get wigged out about going to a doctor because somehow we feel like we don't have faith if we go and get the treatments done. When Tracy was in a hospital last year, I promise you, we did every bit of chemo they had to offer. We did every bit of antibiotic they would give her. We did every bit of pain medicine she could stand. And at the end of it all, when she went into remission, the doctor wrote an email. And in that that email, he didn't say the chemo worked. He didn't say the antibiotics must have done their job. You know what he put in that email? He says, your God healed you. So we took the medicine, but we kept on praying too. We, we did the medicine, but we still had faith that God was going to do a miracle in her. And so here's what I want you to know. In this context that James is saying, go and pray with the elders and let them anoint you with oil. I want you to understand the power was not in the olive oil. The power was in the prayer. And, and this is what the emphasis was put on. Now, now I, I hope, I, let, me, let me help you out with that. Look at verse 14 and 15. If we read it carefully, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Was it the olive oil that shall save the sick? No, it was the prayer of faith that shall save the sick. The power was in the prayer. Now you might be thinking, Andrew, why are you spending so much time on this? Because in our culture, we have a a tendency to over-spiritualize things that don't need to be spiritualized. People put a lot of stock in a lot of trinkets. This is my prayer cloth. This is my prayer necklace. This is my special handkerchief. This is, and and I think just because they have something like that, let let me give you an example. A few years ago, I was in Israel, and we went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is the location, one of the locations they believe Jesus was crucified and then buried. When you walk into, it's a big monstrosity of a church. Everything, everything's significant there. They just build a church right on top of it. It's frustrating. And I remember going into the foyer of this building, this church, and I'm watching, I'm looking, actually I got a picture of the, of the stone uh, so you can have a little idea of what it looked like. Uh, but they have, it was called the anointing stone. The anointing stone. And what they believe well, maybe it'll come up. What they believed is this stone was where they placed the body of Jesus to prepare him. There it is. They believed this was the place they placed the body of Jesus to prepare him from burial, to get him ready for burial. And so that stone is like right when you walk in the doors. It's right there. And I'm, I'm a people watcher. I don't know who else is a people watcher. I like to watch people. And so I'm kind of standing there against the wall watching people. And I see this dude walk in with a big old bag of necklaces. And he takes that bag of necklaces and he dumps it out onto that anointing stone and then starts moving them around. And I'm like, what is this dude doing? And then he picks them all up and puts them back in his bag and he walks out. I'm like, what was that? And then it dawned on me what he was doing. He's now going to go to his little street cart and he's going to sell them. And he's going he's to tell them these necklaces have been put on the anointing stone of Jesus. And people are going to buy them for one or two reasons. One could be, it's a cool souvenir with a cool story. 
You know, I bought this in, in Israel, and they were on an anointing stone of, uh, where they say Jesus was placed before his burial. Or the second reason people will buy them is that somehow in their mind they believe this is going to give them greater access to God. This is going to make my prayers more powerful. If I have this, if I have this, I'm, I'm going to be closer to the Lord because I have a special necklace. And there's danger in that. We must be careful not to spiritualize things in our life that don't need to be spiritualized. If we get this mentality that if I have some special anointing oil, somehow I get God's ear. Or if I have a special prayer cloth, somehow God ignores everybody else and pays attention to me. Or if I have a special necklace. Now, now hear my heart. If you have some kind of sentimental things and you have a certain process where you like to get alone with, the, with God and you get still before him, I, I'm not trying to dog your process, but I want you to hear my heart. The power for you to be able to speak with God is not in some trinket. It's not in some process. It's not in a vial of olive oil. The, the ability for you to have a conversation with God was given to you because of the death of his son. And on the cross, when he gave up his life, when he said it is finished, what happened is in that temple, that veil was torn from top to bottom, separating that was one time separating people from the Holy of Holies. Now they have access. It was symbolizing that there is no more division between God and man. And so Jesus in his sacrifice has made a way for us to have access to God anytime we want. We don't need a trinket. We don't need a necklace. We don't need a vial of olive oil. We don't need a prayer shawl. We don't need a hand. Handkerchief. We can just get on our knees anytime and say, God, here I am. Here's my request. Now, let me look. Let me show you first Timothy chapter two, verse five. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is nothing else that you need to get to God other than Jesus. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. Now, here's why I think it could be dangerous. In spiritualizing things. It's because it takes away the power of Christ in our life where we think we need this plus something else. This plus a special Bible. This plus my special blanket. This plus, and it doesn't have to be that way. And, and, I, I, and, I, and so we see that in the first century church, they were doing some practical things using olive oil, which was a medicinal property to heal the wounds of other people. Now, can I just speak to you for a second about this? Seeing a doctor, getting medical care, taking medication does not make you less of a Christian. And it does not make you less faith filled. It is completely okay. You know what it shows? It shows that you have common sense. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I don't look both ways before I cross the street. I have faith, but I also have common sense. And so you can pray about what doctor you need to go see. You can pray about whether or not you need to have this procedure. You can pray for wisdom on a decision. You can pray that they would give you a flawless surgery. You can pray about those things. But ultimately, who created the doctor? Who gave that doctor the wisdom? Who created the surgeon with his skillful hand that has precise cuts? Who gave the scientist his brain and intellect to be able to discover new treatments and new medicines? Who who created all the plants and all the natural things that we use for natural remedies all the time? If God didn't want you to use it, then he wouldn't have made that stuff available for you to use. So I want you to understand 
If you're someone who struggles with depression or anxiety or, 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 or maybe you're somebody who has mood swings or suicidal thoughts or something like that, that doesn't mean that you lack faith. And that doesn't mean you are less of a Christian. And if you go see a therapist or a psychologist and you get some kind of antidepressant, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you're less of a Christian. There are such things as chemical imbalances. I'm trying to help you out here. You can take the medicine and you can pray at the same time. The medicine doesn't cancel out your faith. And you can say, God, I thank you for the medicine. I thank you for the doctors. I thank you for the treatment. But God, I'm asking you give me better days than I have bad days. Lord, help my tomorrows be better than my yesterdays. God, I just need you to intervene in my life. I thank you for the medicine, but God, I still need you too. And so that's enough of that. (laughs) We see the elders took time to pray for the physically sick, but also B, he took time to pray for the spiritually sick. A was the physically sick. B is for the spiritually sick. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. If he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Listen, there is a reality that sometimes things that we go through, even bodily sickness, is a result of our own sin. Let me clarify, not all, sin, not, not, not all sickness is related to sin, but sometimes it can be. And I know that some of y'all right now, it's wigging you out. Now, Jesus, he responded to this because there was the idea that sin caused sickness. Matter of fact, we go back to that blind man that he healed in John chapter 9. The disciples asked him a question. He says, Jesus, this man's been blind since he was born. Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus responded in John chapter 9, verse 3, He says, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. In other words, he's saying nobody sinned. This is just an opportunity for God to show off here. But then if you look at what Paul says, Paul says, yes, absolutely. There can be sickness that people get when they disobey the word of God. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1130, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Look at Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. What happened to them? They sold a parcel of land and they came and lied to the apostles about how much money they made and how much money they're going to give away. And because they lied to the apostles and because they lied to God, what happened to them? They died. That's a consequence of their sin. Now, when Job was going through his trials, he lost his family, lost his health, lost his wealth. What did his friends immediately accuse him of? You got some kind of unconfessed sin there, Job. That's why this is. So there is an idea that sometimes sickness is related to sin. In John chapter five, Jesus heals a paralytic man. And then he tells him, he says, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. In other words, Jesus is implying the reason you were in the condition you were when I found you is because of your sin. Now go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So how many of you would agree? There are consequences for sin. Do you know that sickness can be a consequence of sin? I don't think sometimes we realize that. And that's why James is making an emphasis here in verse 15. And the latter part of that, if he have committed sins, thou shalt be forgiven him. So he's talking in relation to sickness. And then he says, if he committed sins, it'll be forgiven of him. And so what James is saying, he's saying we need to make sure that we're addressing the root of the problem. Because what they are experiencing may not just be a a, a physical illness. It could be a sin consequence. 
And so we need to deal with the the root of the problem. If there is unforgiveness in their heart, if there is some kind of bitterness or deceit or lying, what's going to happen? It's going to produce consequences in that person's life. They might become depressed. They might become anxious. They might become uh, nauseous. They might become, and there's all these physical things that could be related to the sin in their life. And they're just treating all the symptoms without treating the root. It's just going to keep happening. And so James says, if there needs to be some kind of confession, some kind of uh, remission of sins, let it be so. And so here's what we need to do. When we're going through difficulties and trials in our life, we need to be like David. What did David do in Psalm 139, verse 23? He says, search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. In other words, God, search me right now. I don't want there to be anything wrong in me that I'm not confessing. God, if there's something I'm doing that's causing these consequences in my life, Lord, bring it to light so that I can be forgiven. Because what does he say in verse 15? If he have committed sins, then shall I be forgiven. If the sickness is related to sin, we need to identify it first. We need to search and find out, is this a, a consequence of his sin? And so James says we need to make sure we're addressing the real root of the problem. So we see the praying elders. They're praying for the physically sick. They're praying for the spiritually sick. And then number three, we see the praying church. The praying church. Verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about the idea that prayer is powerful. What is prayer? It's a conversation with God. Where you just get before Him, you make your request known to Him, you bring, you bring your, uh, your friends up, you say, God, I want you to help my friend, I want you to help these people. You're making your request known unto Him, you're thanking Him, you're praising Him. It's simple, but it's so powerful. Prayer is so simple, but it's so powerful. And I believe James is making it clear in these past couple verses that sometimes we have some obstacles to our prayers. And one of the major obstacles we can have in our prayer life is sin. Undealt with sin. Verse 15, he says, when we are physically weak, we should seek out our leadership, have them pray over us. And then pray for our sins to be forgiven. So make sure there's no unforgiven sins in our life. Then we get to verse 16. He says, confess your faults one to another. And then after you do that, then you can pray for one another. So time and time again, these past two verses, he says, confess your faults and confess your sins. Confess your faults, confess your sins. Why? Because that can get in the way of your prayer life. He says, we don't need any obstacles. If you want a powerful prayer life, then make sure you don't have anything unconfessed in your life. The healing he is, he is speaking of here in verse 16, it, it, it's, it's really more of a spiritual healing. He says, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. A spiritual healing. Now, what's the importance of confessing our faults one to another? You know what we call this? Accountability. Accountability. Accountability is so important. It's making our struggles known to someone else. It's taking time to invite people into our lives, inviting them into the places that we hide so we can't hide there anymore. It's it's allowing someone to help you in your struggles. You're saying, here's some areas I'm struggling with. Can you help me? And, And so James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us some excellent wisdom here in this verse because what he's telling us is sin doesn't want you to go to other people. Sin thrives in isolation. 
Sin loves to be kept secret. Sin loves being in the dark. It does not want to be brought out to the light. And so there's wisdom in seeking out someone else you can confide in and confess your faults to them. It means finding a brother or sister in Christ and confiding in them and saying, Hey, listen, I need you to hold me accountable. Here's some areas in my life where I'm struggling right now and I, I, I'm falling bad. Can you help me? And I need you to pray with me and I need you to say the hard things. I, I, I need you to be my friend, but I need you to say the uncomfortable things to me. Call me out if you have to. The ultimate goal in all of this is that we confess our sins before we hit rock bottom. Because usually what happens is we don't confess our sins until we're finally so desperate we can't see our way out. And James says we need to be practitioners of people who are confessing our faults before we get to that place of rock bottom. I had a friend who struggled with, uh, with some uh, same-sex attraction. And a uh, man loved him, loved the dude. I actually led him to the Lord. And he struggled with this. And he would confide in me. He says, man, this is an area where I'm struggling. And uh, I said, okay, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll pray about it. And, you know, I'm thinking, this guy is telling me one of his most secret, embarrassing struggles. And I remember there's times he would call me late at night. He says, I messed up. I messed up. I went too far. He's broken on the phone. And I asked him, I said, buddy, what's more embarrassing for you? To call me before you mess up or to call me after you mess up? He says, well, it's more embarrassing to call you after. I said, then call me before. And for months, I would text him at night. Checking in on him. Let him know I'm praying for him. Let him know I'm lifting him up. Because I believe he was my fellow brother in Christ who had a struggle. Now, you might be thinking, well, it was a same-sex attraction. You know what? I'm a heterosexual male, and I still have fleshly desires. And if I pursue those, it would be just as sinful like if he pursued his. And so he was, he, was, he was trying to help me hold him accountable. He's like, I just need you to be in that place of my life because I don't want to go back there again. Can you help me? I had teenagers from a previous church, that I, uh, or a teenager from a previous church years ago I worked at, call me like 1 o'clock in the morning one day. He's a, a, an adult now. He was an adult then. He called me at like 1 o'clock in the morning. He was drunk, crying on the other end of the phone. His dog had just died. I think the week before then, his grandmother died. He just got out of a bad relationship, and he was just broken. He's crying. He's bitter. He's angry at God. He's everything I love, God takes out of my life. Why does he keep doing this? He's crying, and, he's, he's just, and obviously he's drunk, so it, most of our conversation didn't make any sense. And so the next day, I called him back when he was sober. And I asked him, I said, buddy, we haven't talked in years. Why did you call me? And he says, because I knew you would answer, because I knew you would help me. That is our responsibility as Christians. That we help each other in our lowest moments. That we're there for each other. That we're not to judge them. That we don't beat them up. That we don't try to make them feel any guiltier than they already feel about the state that they're in. But we're there to pray for them and build them up and encourage them and to beg God to deliver them from whatever bondage of sin they're in at that moment. But let's be honest. Can we be honest for a moment? It is so much easier to confess our sins to God than it is to each other, isn't it? 
because of that word called fear. Fear of embarrassment. What if they find out something about me that they don't like? Are they going to look at me different? Fear of, of being found out. You know, Pastor Malcolm talks about it all the time, y'all. Drive around, fight at home like, like Bonnie and Clyde and pull in like Ken and Barbie. And it's time and time. What if people find out that I'm broken and messed up? Listen, the cross has already outed you as a sinner, all right? You ain't fooling nobody. Everybody in here is messed up. All right, we all have our issues. And so we have this fear of, I don't want to tell nobody my struggles because what are they going to think of me? Now, here's the problem. If we have unconfessed sin in our life, it creates two different barriers. I think this is in your handout. It creates two barriers if we have unconfessed sin in our life. Number one, it creates a barrier between us and God. And it creates a barrier between others. And again, sin loves to thrive in isolation. Sin wants to keep you away from everybody. And that's usually, mark it down, put it in your notes. I promise you, the first step away from God is always a step away from God's people. When you see somebody leave the church, it's usually because they they are living in rebellion and because they are guilty and because they feel shameful and they don't feel right to be in God's house and God's presence. So usually the first step away from God is a step away from God's people because sin thrives in isolation. It wants to make you a victim and it wants to make you alone. And that's why James says, confess your faults one to another so you can bring people into your struggles. The Jews, they had a saying... He who prays surrounds his house with a wall stronger than iron. You can do a lot of things in your abilities. You can do a lot of things, but you can't do everything. Prayer can do everything. And so James is emphasizing that we need to be people of prayer. We need to invite others to pray with us. And then lastly, we see the praying prophet. The praying prophet, number four, verses 16 through 18 Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. Lost my place. Uh, And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of uh, three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. So, In this moment, we see that he's talking about a prophet named Elijah. Before he gets there, he says, The effectual fervent prayers availeth much. The word effectual is where we get our word energy. It's the Greek word, I'm not going to say it right, energiho. I'm not Greek, so that's probably way wrong. If you speak Greek, I probably offended you. But it's where we get our, our English word energy. In other words, James says effectual means you can get things done. The word availeth there in verse 16 is the word that means strong and powerful. And so what is James saying? He's saying the fervent prayer of a righteous man is full of energy and power. Isn't that awesome? Prayer is powerful. He says a a, a fervent righteous man, when he prays, boy, their prayer is full of energy and power. Weak prayers come from weak people. But strong prayers come from strong people. And so the energetic prayers of a righteous man are a powerful force for calling down the power of God onto any situation. And then James, after he opens up with that, he goes to start telling us about a man named Elijah. And Elijah was known as a praying man. 
but he was an ordinary man. James makes an important point there. He says he was of like passions like we are. In other words, he was just a dude. He was just a man. Wasn't nothing special about him. In 1 Kings chapter 17, 11, we find out there's times he was hungry. In 1 Kings chapter 9, 19, verse 3, there's times he was afraid. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 14, we find out there were times he was depressed. All right, he was an ordinary guy. He would go from the highest heights of faith, and then he would go down and fall into the depths of despair. He would be brave sometimes, and other times he would run and hide in a cave. There were times he was selfless, and there were times he was full of self-pity. He was an ordinary person, but what made him extraordinary was that he was a man who was right with God. That he made sure to keep his relationship with God in check. And when when he prayed, incredible things would happen. And James references that there was a drought that happened in his day that lasted for three and a half years. It was Elijah's prayers that brought on the drought, and it was Elijah's prayers that stopped the drought. And James is letting us know that through Elijah, an ordinary man, when he prayed, there were results that happened that only God could produce. He prayed, God delivered. And if we follow the the life of Elijah, and in his prayers, and the miracles that happened with Elijah... In 1 Kings chapter 17, we find there's a moment he prayed for a widow's son who had passed away. And that widow's boy came back to life. That's amazing. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we see the mighty duel on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And he begins to mock them. He puts out a sacrifice for them. They put out sacrifices. They call down whatever God answers by fire. We'll know that's the one true God. And the prophets of Baal, they were, they were singing and hollering, dancing and cutting themselves, making a big old scene. He says, maybe he's out on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. And he's just mocking them. And then he says one simple prayer. And fire came down from heaven and devoured the altar, the sacrifice, and licked up every bit of water that was around. And then immediately after 1 Kings chapter 18, we get to 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is tired from all that happened at Mount Carmel. And now he's taken, my, taken off guard because Jezebel's making some threats. I'm going to do to him like he did to my prophets. And Elijah is depressed. And what is amazing, if you read 1 Kings chapter 19, what's amazing is even in his depression, he's still talking to God. Now, that that might not speak to any of you, like many of you in here, but if you've ever suffered with depression, you know it's tough to talk to God when you're depressed. When you're struggling, when you feel defeated, it's, it's hard to muster up the strength to even talk to Him. And so when you look at Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, even though he was depressed and he felt defeated, he never lost touch with talking with God. Now his prayers changed though. His prayers changed because in 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 4, this is what he prayed. In the latter part of that, where it says, Oh Lord. He says, Oh Lord, take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. In other words, he's saying, I just want to die. Now he's not contemplating suicide, but what he's saying is saying, God, just end it. I'm done. I'm defeated. This man who called down fire, this man who brought a dead boy back to life, this amazing man of prayer, in his highs and his lows, got to a time where he was discouraged so much so that he just wanted to die. And here's the one thing that's so cool about this, is that God didn't allow him to die at all. (laughs) He said, God, take me out of here. I just want to die. He says, how about I just go ahead and take you home? 
He didn't even see death. He prayed for death and God wouldn't even give it to him. That's, that's how big and good God is. And his example, what's his example showing us? He's showing us that a righteous person, when he prays, the results that follow are results that only God can produce. Human prayer equals divine results. You ain't got to be no superhero. You ain't got to be no super saint. All you got to do is be somebody who's passionately pursuing God. When you get out of line, you get back in line as quickly as possible. You confess your sins. You make right your sins with others. You confess your faults one to another. You don't live in isolation. You belong in community. So you need to be in Christian fellowship and you pursue and live for the Lord as, as much as you can possibly. And what happens is God will honor your request. He will hear you and he will respond to you. It's not rocket science. He just says, be in relationship with me, walk with me, and we can do this thing together. Now, out of all the places that James could have quoted from, Ezekiel, uh, from Elijah's life. Because we just covered just several right now. Of all these times where Elijah had prayed and God had answered in a miraculous way. Out of all these moments that James could have picked from, he picked the moment where Elijah called down rain. And he called, out, he, he called a drought. He prayed for a drought, then he prayed for the drought to stop. Out of all the places, he picked that. And I think that was intentional. I think he's trying to paint a picture for us right now. I think what he's trying to show us is that just like rain can heal a thirsty and parched ground, so can the living water of God heal a thirsty and parched soul. And all you got to do is ask for it. I believe God, I believe, I believe James was using God to help us see that he wants to be a, a God who refreshes our souls who comes close in our times of struggles, what does James say? He says, is any of you afflicted? Pray. Are any of you merry, happy? Pray. He says, anybody sick and hurting and feel persecuted and depressed? Pray. Hey, anybody in here just an ordinary person? He said, you can pray like Elijah. He was just a, he was a simple man, but he prayed great things. Isn't it good that we can have a relationship with God like that? I wonder, I wonder if there is anyone here tonight that has been struggling in their prayer life who feels defeated, who feels depressed, that feels like their prayer life is weak or anemic. They feel like God doesn't listen to them. I wonder, I wonder if you realize God is patiently waiting on you. You don't need no special olive oil. You don't need no special necklace. You don't need no special prayer shawl. You don't need no special nothing. All you got to do is get alone with him and he'll be there to meet you. Amen.